There are places that we're meant, if we are able, to spend a lot of time. Places with which we develop deep relationships. Home, hopefully, though maybe not this much time. School, our places of work or worship, perhaps. And then there are public spaces that we move through rapidly, glancingly. And then there are those in-between places, not ours per se, but places that can take on deeper meaning, have a greater impact, like hospitals. A hospital is a kind of liminal space, a place between worlds where the you that leaves might be different from the you that came in. Sometimes that brings relief, other times it's completely terrifying. The people holding all of this, the doctors and nurses and staff, watch day in and day out as humanity glides by in all its glorious complexity. I'm Joanna Felser, Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep. Our bodies pass through the space of other people's stories all the time. So we asked 10 writers to think of a place within the city of Berkeley where something meaningful or memorable happened to them, and then to write a story inspired by that place. Some are fact, some are fiction, and some live somewhere in between. This week on Berkeley Rep's Place Settings, we bring you a story that arose from a visit to Alta Bates Hospital of a couple whose life might be about to change in more ways than they had imagined. 20 Weeks by Adam Mansbach, read by the author. A century ago, being born with bilateral club foot meant you would never walk. Now, 10 seconds of surgery can fix it. The Achilles tendons are severed and regrown. The tiny, soft, young bones retrained over the course of months and then reminded every night for years. You learn that your child has this genetic defect when a sudden silence fills the ultrasound room. A clinical box, the temperature of the inside of a refrigerator, windowless, dark, antiseptic, the central furnishing called a table even though it is for lying on. The light comes from the computer monitor as the wand moves over the belly. The head is a good size, the technician says. Oh, look, the shoulders. She's turned away from us. Here are the hands. The wand moves down and suddenly the technician stops chit-chatting, adjusts her glasses, rolls her chair across the tile, says something about getting the doctor, and darts out the door. You sense that certain protocols are being put into effect, and it cannot be good. The goo stiffens across the taut, exposed belly of your partner, and you lean forward awkwardly in your table-side chair so that your hands can clasp. A dread that is still without form begins to spread out inside you. It is vague but also familiar because it has been coiled tight for the duration of the pregnancy. A fear that something will go wrong, and that soon you will be the custodian of a person whose needs you can never meet, who will not offer you the rewards, the joys, the mundane wonders of which parenthood is made, that instead, this baby will be your undoing, your unraveling, 
that she will take you down, that your relationship will not survive, that the limits, the parameters of your ability to love will be revealed at last. You cannot and would not say any of this, but already this moment is beginning to calcify, to feel like the line of demarcation, the border between innocence and burden. Everything before this was so good, so easy, and perhaps if you had not failed to appreciate it, whatever is happening would not be. Which is absurd, magical thinking, and besides, nothing has even happened yet. There is no reason for you and Jamie to be squeezing each other's hands so hard. No reason for your silence. No reason it should not feel shared, but like two bubbles of silence pressing up against each other. A long time passes, or seems to, and then a doctor you have never seen before appears. It would not be surprising to learn that this doctor had a trophy in his fluorescent office commemorating his victory in the 2017 International Worst Bedside Manner competition. He speaks to you in a kind of medical binary, ones and zeros, points to things on the monitor you cannot decipher, curvatures that bend the wrong way. He doesn't quite look you in the eye. The ellipses in his speech come in the wrong places, as if he is clapping on the one and the three instead of the two and the four. Somewhere in there you learn that clubfoot is common, that it is operable, that Mia Hamm had it. Perhaps your daughter will be an Olympian, you think, which in turn makes you think of Hephaestus, the misshapen forge god cast out of heaven by his mother when she sees his legs. We were planning on having this baby at home. We didn't like hospitals, could not fathom why they made some people feel safe, had read extensively about the over-medicalization of birth, the systemic racism of the medical establishment, the way labor was geared toward the convenience of doctors and the vicissitudes of insurance providers. We were only in this room because our midwife did not have an ultrasound machine. Before long, you find yourself in a hallway, bright, indifferent to what goes on behind the doors of the rooms, and then a young genetic counselor collects you, ushers you into her office. It is the first place you have seen with normal lighting since you entered this facility what seems like weeks ago. She explains that there is a 6% chance more is wrong, that clubfoot can be a harbinger of other defects, some of them serious, some of them cognitive. And this is the word that makes you want to puke. The number six is icy steep. No matter that a 6% likelihood of rain would not make you reconsider your picnic. And then there are decisions to make, fraught and immediate. Do you chance finding out more when more might only confuse you, reveal snarls in the DNA that no one can explain, that science has yet to map, that might mean nothing or everything? Do you risk peace of mind via the needle, leech a draw of amniotic broth when there is a 0.5% possibility that the thin metal entering the body kills? No one cancels a picnic over half a percent, but this is not a picnic. And for that matter, how well do you know this person? 
with whom you are having a baby, but with whom you have never before been truly scared, whom you met after the great tragedies of your life thus far were well behind you. What could you forgive if one of you insisted on a course of action and was wrong? If there is more bad news, what then? What would it take to make you decide not to have this baby? And would you agree? If you did not, would you argue? Jamie was supposed to go away in six days on a silent meditation retreat on which she would be completely unreachable, and she did not cancel it, which I found remarkable. We did not drift away from each other as those days unfolded, or if we did, we always found each other again. Jamie delved into research, preparation, found the parents' blogs, the charities, the best doctors, studied the surgery, looked at pictures of tiny corrective shoes connected underneath by little metal bars. I thought about the time I had seen an infant with casts on both legs. What an asshole I had been to assume great negligence on the part of the kid's parents. I told Jamie that Clubfoot didn't scare me, didn't faze me in the least, that the moment we got past the specter of the 6%, the word cognitive, I would be good. Jamie lay beside me and said she found me very calming, which felt like the nicest thing that anyone had ever said, though privately I worried that she was mistaking a partial emotional shutdown for calm. The night before she was supposed to leave and go be quiet for a week in Petaluma, the hospital called. The tests were back, and the clubfoot was just clubfoot. The rest of our baby's DNA contained neither asterisks nor mysteries. We exhaled for the first time in a week, and the only true fear I had left retreated back inside its dungeon, shackled itself back to its post. Jamie left to meditate, and a week later I picked her up and took her straight to hear an old professor of mine speak at Stanford, and we both laughed our asses off at what a blowhard he had become and how badly he read the room, and then he hit on her as I had warned her he would, and Jamie was like, nah, actually, let's not have dinner with that clown, and we didn't. We went to a Lebanese place by ourselves instead and laughed some more, as if rediscovering our own language, and a few months later Xanthi was born at home. Jamie's water never broke, so Xanthi came out in the call. This is called a veiled birth, and they say it is auspicious, that only one in 80,000 babies is born that way. This story was written and read by Adam Mansbach, a number one New York Times best-selling author for Go the Fuck to Sleep, award-winning novelist, screenwriter, and cultural critic. He lives in Berkeley. Berkeley Rep thanks our Rep on Air sponsor, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and our place-setting sponsor, Berkeley Side. And we're deeply grateful to Berkeley Rep season sponsors, Bruce Golden and Michelle Mercer, Jack and Betty Schaefer, the Strout Colhangian family, Francis Hellman and Warren Breslau, Bart and Pete's Coffee for their generous support. This series is produced by Berkeley Repertory Theater. Sound design by Lane Elms and Madeline Oldham, with additional music by Brent Arnold, who is a Brooklyn-based composer, performer, and cellist who could also bake a mean loaf of bread even before the pandemic started. The music you heard in this episode is from his album Night Exquisite, which you can find on Bandcamp. 
Our theme music is by Buen Aurelio Malazar. You can also find him on Bandcamp. Join us next week for a story by Sean San Jose. Thank you.